other issues, transgender, those kind of things, and feel that kind of future tense in a sense. I'm not sure how many people in China have been going through surgical transformation, transgender. I'm not sure how many people are doing that. However, in terms of LGBTQ community, they have been fighting for their equal rights over the past two decades. And among the younger generation, homophobia has been reduced tremendously, I have to say, because the younger generation, educated younger generation people, they have been more exposed to Hollywood movies than to the CCTV. Uh, their parents' generation mostly will be glued to the seven o'clock CCTV news. They're supposed to be the most authoritarian voice, whatever you know, articulated there were taken as the truth, the only truth, the only reality. But for the younger generation, they even didn't watch. So there's a huge cognizant gap between the older generation and young generation. It depends on, you know, people's understanding of the world is very much depending on what kind of information you receive, right? And plus among the young educated or also intellectuals, a lot also use VPN to climb over the firewall to access information from outside the world. So NGO started with Chinese government's decision to host the fourth UN conference. Along with this UN event, there's um, NGO forum. I'm not sure if you, you have heard of that. The NGO Forum was the result of operations of global feminists. And so they insist at the time of the UN Conference on Women, there should be a companion platform for NGO, women's NGOs all over the world. So the Chinese government decided to host the UN Conference without fully understanding there's a companion NGO. At the time they decided to host this was because that's after 1989. So after the state's brutal suppression of the students' movement in 1989, they encountered global sanctions embargoes. And then the CCP leaders said, oh gosh, you know, we screwed up. Their intention at the time is to attract transnational corporations' investment. And now you already scared all these people, global community, away from China, right? So now they're looking for an opportunity to come back to the global community. So then they found, oh, the UN was looking for a venue for, for, for a country who would like to provide a venue for it. So the Chinese government jumped on that opportunity. And plus, no other country was bidding for that venue. The fourth UN conference, the official date was 1995 in uh, September. The preparation or decision was made in 1992 because you need to prepare, prepare for this huge event. And so when they discovered, oh, shoot, there's an NGO forum, then you cannot say, okay, we we have an NGO forum, we just... uh, all the foreign NGOs women can come, but uh, no Chinese NGOs. That won't look good, right? And plus, feminists at the time grabbed opportunity. So they maneuvered to 
created a space for Chinese NGOs. So they have been writing tremendous amount of stuff, including the official Women's Federation's newspaper, Women's Daily, became discursive site for Chinese feminists to argue for the legitimacy of establishing Chinese women's NGOs, saying that non-governmental organization is not anti-government organization. They gained this legitimacy during that period of time. And also the international donors came in at the same time to fund a lot of women's NGOs to enable them to participate in the event. So for one decade following the 1995 Women's Conference, NGOs developed vibrantly, rapidly, not just women's NGOs, but also uh, NGOs dealing with other specific issues. NGOs for AIDS victims, huge, because at the time they had global fund and big money. Whichever can have large donors that will develop very fast. Each NGO receives funding from international donors. We have anti-domestic violence NGO develop very big, had a national reach, gender and development. Internationally, you had color revolution happening. The CCP was threatened, alarmed. They regarded each large size NGO as the rivalries to the rule of the party. Behind the scenes, they started to either sabotage NGOs or suppress them, harass the leaders. So it's a kind of a progression then to outright disband them. Other NGOs basically all gone. The government tried their own NGOs they will also apply for international donors' money. <laughs> and then they will organize some sidelines, charity organizations as NGOs. Of course, NGOs are dealing with various issues, right? They have various agendas. So those who, by nature, is kind of more charity organization. You can work with the government, you know, like the natural disaster relief, you know, earthquake relief, you do that. You're calling for donation and helping those poor NGOs in that kind of nature. Fine. Actually, I have a piece on Chinese censorship, the self-censorship. Also, I have a personal page. All my publications, yeah, I would say most of my publications are there. Yeah, yeah, if, if more detailed stuff there because uh, that's my expertise, studying the development and the history of Chinese feminism and the current development is, okay, typing Global Feminism Project. We interviewed a total 15 taken between 2002 and 2005. That's the previous generation. That 10 women were the feminists who initiated NGOs around 1995. They were grabbing the opportunity of the 1995 conference to start NGO organizations. Each one of them is an NGO organization's leader. So that's that generation. 
Then the other five, they were interviewed in 2019. One of them, Wei Tingting, is among the feminists of five. And she would, in that interview, mostly she talked about her jail experience. And then another one you want to look at is Huang Xueqing. She played a major role in the 2018 Chinese Me Too movement. Huang Xueqing, in 2019, after this interview, then she went to Hong Kong and she was a journalist and she reported Hong Kong's protest movement. Then she returned to Guangzhou, then she was detained. And then she was released after several months. And then again, she was kidnapped, meaning nobody knows who kidnapped her, why she disappeared for several months. And then until five months later, or then their families discovered that she was in, in prison. So she's still in prison. So we run this lecture, Nu Quan Yue Yue Tan, It's a monthly lecture. So last month, the lecture was given by this Taiwan feminist leader. And next month, we will have a lecture by a postdoc in Japan. We're talking about the Japanese feminist movement. And uh, the actual collaboration happened a long time ago. Like the first women's studies uh, training, faculty training workshop I created in collaboration with Chinese University in Hong Kong and Chinese Women's College in Beijing. That was 2002. And then we collaborated with Taiwan feminists. 2003, Taiwan feminists hosted a group of Chinese feminist scholars that I organized. And we visited Taiwan University's women's studies programs. Now it becomes more difficult for us to collaborate because at the time we had, I was also among the initiators of a big uh, grant from the Ford Foundation to establish, to, develop, to establish women gender studies curriculum in higher education in China. Well, the collaboration, if you want to real to happen, depending on the resources, without money, what can you do? Uh, you need actual networks. If you don't know anybody, like in Romania, right? Oh, it would be great if the, if the Chinese families can connect with the Romanian families to see that after the, the collapse of communist regime, what happened to Romanian people? What's going on in Romanian feminist movement? Fabulous. But who knows Romanian feminists? These are all practical issues. So you have to have those material bases before you can talk about the collaboration and anything else. Actually, you know, it's not difficult now because everything is online. And feminist conferences, a lot of Zoom conferences, all in the open air. And in Romania, they do not block the internet, right? It's, it's so easy. It's unlike in China. A lot of international conferences you cannot attend. You have to think about logistics, right? What's the language for this kind of venue? But you cannot assume all the Chinese families, even the younger generation, can communicate in English. You cannot assume that. Most do not.
Okay, so that that's also a limitation there. I was born in the socialist period in China. Now, of course, China is not socialist state capitalism. In my book, Finding Women in the State: A Socialist Feminist Revolution in the PRC in the early PRC, I traced the internal behind the scenes maneuvers of feminists in the Communist Party. That's the subject of my second book in English. So it was these feminists in the Communist Party, they pushed for equality between men and women and, and women's liberation. They joined the Communist Party in the early days early 20th century, and then with the victory of the Communist Party, uh, they became the state power holders. And the uh, feminists were in the realm of, in many, many fields. And more importantly, they kind of concentrated in cultural production. So in my book, I traced the film and the film industry in the socialist period, early PRC, were, were run by feminist leaders. So it was these cultural product producers, feminist cultural producers who produced a lot of feminist products. So in other words, in my growing up period, I was saturated with that kind of feminist ideas. Basically that kind of social feminist ideas is that uh, women have to be independent, okay? Not to rely on men and you have to have economic independent capacity, okay? And the men are my equal. And in that generation also, you, you never think about yourself as inferior to men because all those cultural producers, cultural products were saturated with uh, revolutionary heroines. Those are your role models. So you believe you're not inferior to anybody. You can do whatever you can. So that's my background, but, but without using the word feminism, because in the Communist Party's language, uh, they critique the feminism as bourgeois, narrow, Western. So my book talked about the development of these terminologies and the tensions within the Communist Party. Oh, that's the history of European uh, socialism. Actually, European feminists emerged at the same time as socialist movement. And then there's kind of a compete for constituencies. So European socialists started the kind of othering schemes to define any of those feminists who did not join the socialist movement as bourgeois. Both camps will say they are for women's rights. But what kind of women's rights you are fighting for? If you are just saying, hey, we are fighting for uh, women's uh, political rights, then it's uh, you're working on suffrage movement, while others fighting for factory women workers, equal pay or benefits, equal benefit or maternity leave. They are in the camp of socialist movement. So if the feminists, European feminists, their agenda do not involve in critiquing of the capitalist economic system, then you're bourgeois. If you 
joined the socialist movement in the social critiquing capitalist system and even agitating for overthrowing the capitalist system. Like later, join the Russian Revolution. Then you are in the camp of proletarian women's liberation movement. So the distinction was drawn back in the European history. The feud between socialist camps of women's movement and other other women's movements. Not all the feminists joined the socialist party or the communist party, right? That practice was introduced into the Chinese communist party because of their interaction with interaction with European socialist movement and the communist revolution. In my group, as I just said, because of the socialist state feminist cultural production, they are they made equality between men and women as a dominant discourse. Their their goal is to drive away Confucian gender norms and to promote equality between men and women as a dominant discourse. Doesn't mean they drive away. They already transformed the patriarchal society, or they eliminated all the all the sexist norms, social norms. No, doesn't mean that. But in the discursive realm, because they controlled all the media <laughs> in the socialist period, there's no private media and no internet, right? So everything is controlled by the Communist Party. So it's not difficult for them to put all this equality between men and women, this kind of gender discourse as a dominant official discourse. I was shaped by that discourse. Well, that's a huge. My mom was an illiterate woman with bound feet. Yeah, she was in that generation. So I felt I was totally liberated by socialist revolution. Oh, then I came, you can read my memoir. Um, my memoir is also on my personal webpage. You can see that English memoir and also Chinese memoir. I have one piece in English, one piece in Chinese. So when I just came to the United States, I still thought of myself as a totally socialist woman liberated. Okay, um, but then when I started to take courses in U.S. women's history, then I realized some areas. That socialist Chinese social feminist revolution have not touched, and、uh, in the first 15 years of communist parties taking power, socialist state feminist attention was to enable Chinese women to participate in the gainful employment. That's all the previous socialist countries do. They always encourage women to participate because that's an Anglo-Saxon thesis. That you know, women's liberation is、uh, based on women's participation in the social production. For women, for social women to be liberated, you have to join the social production. You should read my chapter, "Finding Women in the State," chapter eight. Now that chapter is specifically talking about how come socialist state of feminism was erased, and their agenda was abandoned. How the 1980s is the transitional period in which the Communist Party abandoned their goal of socialist revolution and started to embrace global capitalism. How in that transition 
from a social a party who aimed at a social revolution pursuing egalitarian in all aspects of society. I do not mean I endorse. Now looking back, I endorse their idealistic dreams and radical dreams. In that transitional period when the party abandoned their revolutionary goals and started to embrace global capitalism, gender discourse switched drastically. The previous equality between men and women as a dominant official discourse was abandoned and also deframed, demonized, and then in its place, the male intellectuals especially promoted a new gender discourse as a discourse of femininity. But what about gender discourse? I would like you to pay attention to the switch of gender discourse, the process, concrete historical process, the switch of gender discourse happened. So since your background from Romanian society and history, that particular history, you know, I'm sure you will see a lot of parallels if you read my this book, because this is about the history of socialist period. First 15 years, then I extended it to, to the contemporary. And mostly I myself want to address the puzzle, how come the socialist period I experienced, and all of a sudden I came to the United States in 1985, it was still socialism. And when I returned home in 1988, three years, I didn't go back to China. Then 1988, oh my gosh, things already changed beyond my recognition, you know? So I just, hey, what happened? Who is making that kind of change? For whose benefit? For what purpose? So that became some big puzzles in my mind. So that's how I, I started my project. But if you want to trace back to the history of these uh, uh, communist feminists, then you may want to read my first book, Women in the, in the Chinese Enlightenment. That was that the book was uh, focusing on early 20th century, how the high tide of Chinese feminist movement emerged. And I interviewed a bunch of uh, feminists born 1900s. Actually, it's my effort to establish a genealogy of Chinese feminism. I want to understand where they came from, how they evolved, and what's today's situation. Global Socialist Feminism. I worked on that project. I hosted a, an international conference back in 2019 on Global Socialist Feminism. So we invited uh, feminist scholars in these post-socialist countries for a conference for three days. And we also set up a website. Yeah. Okay. All right. Nice talking to you.